Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number seven. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are back for another week. It's almost amazing that we made it this far. <laughs> this far, and that we actually managed to squeeze this one in this week. Yeah, it was a very busy week for the both of us. But uh, yeah, you, you really haven't been around much this week. I haven't been. I'm working the Hamptons International Film Festival, uh, which is about an hour and a half from where we live on Long Island. We're nowhere near the Hamptons, and uh, I've been staying out there, which has been pretty cool, but it's also been pretty busy. Yeah, to say the least. And I've I've just been completely off the map. It's, yeah, you had a big week yourself. Yeah, you know, it's... So I, I work in food and beverage, and uh, I've had this this dream for a long time of becoming a certified sommelier. And I've started to pursue that. So I had my level one test last week in Manhattan and I passed it. So uh, level one certified. I'm not a sommelier just yet, but closing in on it. But you want to talk about months and months of prep work. It's absolutely insane. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you so much. No, you deserve it. I appreciate it. Congrats on your wine snobbery. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. My paid, my paid wine snobbery. But it did not stop us from getting into this week's film. No, we are dedicated to bringing you an episode. So shall we? Shall we start discussing this? Let's get right into it. 2007's Enchanted. Yes, we figured we would do this as a follow-up to Snow White because of all the movies that Enchanted encompasses, it probably parallels Snow White more than anything else, or parodies Snow White more than anything else. It kind of does a little bit of both, doesn't it? Yeah. No, nothing is safe, safe in this movie. No. I, which is, I'm not going to bury the lead. Let's just get into it. All right, cool. So we open on a pop-up book where we are introduced to Andalasia, where the evil Queen Nerissa schemes to protect her claim to the throne, which she will lose once her stepson, Prince Edward, marries. Nerissa enlists the help of Nathaniel, her hands her henchmen, to keep Prince Edward distracted, so they spend their days capturing trolls. One day, while Edward and Nathaniel are out, Prince Edward hears the Princess Giselle singing about how she dreams of true love's kiss, and Edward runs to her to finish their duet. Nathaniel sets free the catch of the day to go after Giselle, but Prince Edward manages to save her. They instantly fall in love and plan to marry the very next day. Like you do. Yeah, doesn't this sound familiar? <laughs> So as Giselle is walking through the castle grounds the next day in her wedding dress, which was designed by her animal friends, she is intercepted by the Queen Nerissa, disguised as an old woman. She tricks Giselle into making a wish into a well and pushes her down. The well is actually a portal that leads to a manhole in none other than Times Square, where Giselle washes up a complete fish out of water. She begins to look for Edward and is lost in the hustle and bustle of New York City, where no one will help her until she runs into Robert Philip and his daughter Morgan, who convinces her father to bring Giselle in out of the rain and help her get on her way. Giselle's best chipmunk friend Pip has witnessed Giselle's exile and alerts Edward, who immediately embarks on her rescue mission, and Nerissa sends Nathaniel after them. Nerissa appears to Nathaniel in various forms in New York City and gives him three poisoned apples to do the dirty work on Giselle for her. Pip, of course, overhears everything, but now that they're out of Andalasia, he has lost his ability to communicate, and the evil 
and he has no way of letting Prince Edward know of Queen Norris's evil plan. So back at Robert's house, Giselle wakes up the next morning and cleans everything for seemingly no reason at all with the help of her animal friends, who in this new world consist of rats and pigeons from <laughs> New York City. And cockroaches. It's, yes. It's awesome. <laughs> Uh, so Giselle gets in the shower after cleaning and Robert and Morgan wake up to find all of the vermin in their home and try to chase them out of the house. Just as Giselle is getting out of the shower, Robert's girlfriend Nancy arrives to walk Morgan to school and is not happy to find Giselle freshly out of the shower and assumes that Robert has been unfaithful when he has actually been planning to propose to Nancy. Though Robert is upset about his relationship, he continues to help Giselle find her way and spends the next day with her. Giselle, ever the hopeless romantic, tries to help Robert reconcile with Nancy by sending her an invitation to the King and Queen's costume ball. Despite Nathaniel's attempts to keep Edward from finding Giselle and at murder, Edward manages to track her down and is overly enthusiastic about getting her back to Andalasia for their wedding. After Giselle has spent some time with Robert and learned about relationships in the real world, she suggests that Edward take her out on a date to get to know each other better and then promises to return to Andalasia. After what is clearly a bad date, Giselle and Edward try to end their day on a good note by also attending the ball. Nerissa, who has been spying on everyone from Andalasia, decides to take matters into her own hands after Nathaniel has failed to poison Giselle twice and is down to his last apple. Robert and Giselle switch partners at the ball, and while they dance together, the tension between them is clearly making Prince Edward and Nancy uncomfortable. So they cut in, and Prince Edward declares that it's time to go. As they leave, they are intercepted by Nerissa again in old hag form, who offers the apple to Giselle, claiming that it will erase this trip from her memory. Giselle accepts because she can't bear the thought of Robert ending up with Nancy. Nerissa attempts to escape with Giselle's body, but is stopped by Edward. Robert realizes that true love's kiss is the only force powerful enough to break the apple's spell, but Edward's kiss fails to wake her. In order to save her, everyone, including Nancy, agrees that Robert should try to kiss Giselle. Robert kisses her just as the clock strikes midnight, and Giselle awakens, which infuriates Nerissa, who then transforms into a dragon, naturally, and takes Robert hostage up to the roof. Giselle realizes that she must save her true love, takes Edward's sword, and pursues Nerissa to the top of the building. Just as Nerissa, in dragon form, is about to throw Robert to his death, the top of the skyscraper folds under her weight and she falls to her death. Giselle manages to save Robert by pinning him to the building with Edward's sword. As Robert and Giselle affirm their love, Prince Edward slips Giselle's lost shoe onto Nancy, who he then takes to Andalasia to marry. And Giselle and Robert stay in New York City, where Giselle opens up Andalasia Fashions, a clothing store for girls, and Nathaniel and Pip become best-selling authors of a book which recounts their fairy tale. And that's the happily ever after. Of course. And ever, ever after. Yes. Which is the song that we are greeted by, sung by Carrie Underwood as this movie ends. Um, okay, so let's start with reviewing the script for this movie. It's um, It's absolutely brilliant. It is. I mean... The way the execution is brilliant, but just the willingness for Disney to make fun of themselves is remarkable. This movie, and I'd only before we we decided that we were going to review it, I'd only seen it one time, and I remember liking it very much. I watched this movie no less than four times this week. <laughs> Twice because I wanted to brush up on it and twice because this has quickly become one of my favorite movies. The rewatchability factor 
with Enchanted is unbelievable. It's absolutely through the roof. It gets funnier and funnier every single time you watch it. Mm-hmm. And having just come off of Snow White, which I kind of admittedly yeah. ripped a new one last week, it's it's perfect the way that it satires everything. Yeah, if you want to really do yourselves a favor, you'll enjoy this movie on a blind. But if you really want to like it, watch Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and then watch this. Give yourself yeah, do a, it back to back. Give yourself a nice double feature, either on a Saturday morning or on a day where it's raining and you're not going to go out and do anything. Get yourself some popcorn, some Pepsi or Coke or whatever you beverage you like, a glass of wine if you're over 21 and just... Or Mickey Oreos. Whatever it is. Just whatever it is. Just make a day and watch them both back to back. And Enchanted is so much better when you watch it after Snow White. It's true. It's great on its own. But I just feel like after dissecting Snow White, this was just the perfect thing to kind of like fill in the you know what it is it it kind of justifies everything that i said about snow white because they recognize the flaws with it yeah i mean this everything everything in this movie is so over the top it is so intentionally over the top and cheesy um and it just works perfectly when it parodies not just Snow White. I mean, she is the most flowery of those Disney princesses, but the floweriest of them all. Oh yeah, but <laughs> but so many of the originals. Um, you get a little bit of Sleeping Beauty. You get a little Snow White. You get some Cinderella. You get basically everything packaged up here, courtesy of Amy Adams. Right, and it's it's satire, but it also manages to pay tribute because. From the jump, you know, it opens with the book on the blue velvet. Yeah, with that old great Disney font. Exactly. No, and that that they incorporated, you know, we talked about it in the Jungle Book and we talked about it in Snow White is that that's how Disney opened his first animated feature and the last one that he produced before he passed away. So I certainly don't think that that was done as a satire. I think that that was done as a tribute. Absolutely. And for this opening book, you have none other than Julie Andrews narrating. Oh, it's perfect. Again, another tribute. That's not done satirically. Although I'm sure it did not take her much convincing to get her to do something like this. What they did very well in this movie was they picked just enough fun at themselves where you could tell that they don't take themselves too seriously, but it didn't come off like you were watching like like UHF, like a Weird Al movie. Right. Like they towed the line very tastefully. And actually, they made a really good movie. It's it's a fun story with fun characters and good music. It's it's a it's a really fun movie to watch. Yeah. And the cast too is amazing. Yeah. They were all good sports about it. The funny thing is when you watch this movie, and I guess it's because it is a parody of so many of those classic Disney films, these are not characters that I likened it to watching The Incredibles. Okay? And by that I mean this. You've never seen any of these characters before. They don't exist in any universe prior to this film. So you don't know them until you watch this movie. But you immediately recognize them for who they are and what they are. You find them endearing and you are locked and loaded right away. And the same thing happens with the Incredibles, which no pun intended is incredible because you're taking a superhero movie with no backstory at all, no history. And they made one of the best superhero movies ever made. 
better than some superhero movies where those characters have 70, 80 years of backstory. That's a really good comparison. Good point. So that that was, I mean, that's the closest thing I can compare it to because there's no basis of comparison prior to the release of this film for any of these characters. Right. And it's new, but it's familiar because within the first three minutes, um, you know, the, the satirical elements are that Princess Giselle has animal friends like Snow White and Cinderella. They're all in this cottage, which looks like the dwarf's cottage, but it also kind of looks like um, Alice in Wonderland when she ends up as a giant in the house. Yes. Um, and to me, um, Giselle kind of looks like Ariel, but she's living like Rapunzel by herself. Yeah. So you manage to hit on like all of these things within three minutes. And can I say, I love the fact that they used hand-drawn animation and that they didn't just default to the computer animation. Yes, and that is one thing that I failed to mention in the plot description is that this begins on the animation and once you go through the portal, it becomes live action. Mm -hmm. So for those who have not seen this movie, that's the brilliance of it from the jump is that you are throwing a Disney princess who not only looks but acts through and through like a Disney princess into New York City. And I love how when she uh, when she gets pushed into that well, the evil queen says, I'm going to send her to a place with no happy endings. And she sends her to Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> it's perfect. But you know what? That That is a good point because I don't think this movie would have worked anywhere else but Manhattan because she's immediately thrust into this hustle and bustle and she's in her wedding dress. So as somebody who has spent a very fair amount of time in New York City, some crazy gal walking around in her wedding dress is like normal day-to-day -day operation. So people are really not paying attention to her. They think that she's just a lunatic running around and nobody really stops to help her. It's probably the most normal thing any of them saw in Midtown Manhattan that day. Exactly. But on the end of Princess Giselle... Uh, you know, it's also, this is her worst nightmare because she doesn't understand why no one will help her. Right, and like, it's so pushy and it's full of jaded New Yorkers and she's got that fish out of water scenario, so it is so funny and it's so it's so well done comedically. Um, but uh, to, to touch on the animation and where it begins, like, it is so over the top. It is that that like quintessential Disney and she's singing to the animals and they're they're just all over the place and they all have that big smile with those big doe eyes. It, it's like it, it's almost like a comfort level thing. It's what you've gotten accustomed to when it comes to those Disney characters. Right. And Princess Giselle and Prince Edward are just so over the top. I mean, it, that's intentional. They're supposed to be exaggerated, but they're singing a song I've been dreaming of a true love's kiss and it one of the lyrics is uh they're made to finish each other's duet or something to that effect and they do they finish the line it's hysterical yeah the songs in this are so cheesy but it's still great and it it still feels like a disney movie right but but without like without trashing previous disney films exactly. like i said it's 
until you've seen this movie, it's hard to explain this to the point where it doesn't sound like they just cashed in on themselves by making fun of themselves. They did so very tastefully, very well done. Um, you know, how she sings out the window and she calls to the animals oh is like t- so tongue in cheek. She does. She does the the I don't know if I'm gonna be able to pull this off in that pitch, but ah, yeah, exactly. And they just but like way, way higher. Right. And she does it so high. And it's like every time she does it, it cuts to another animal. And it's that Disney scene of the animal like turning and looking over its shoulder <laughs> right at her house. And then they just flock in. Um, so uh, the the movie, it does flow very nicely. It doesn't ever really get boring. And the kitschiness doesn't wear off. No. You know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes you see movies like this and you're like, all right, we get it. We've seen it. Ha, ha, ha. It never gets like that. Like, it's just, it's consistent throughout. Especially Princess Giselle. As you said before, she's played by Amy Adams and she does not break this entire time. I mean, we said in our Muppets episode what a good sport Amy Adams is, but I think you see now why it was such an obvious casting choice for Muppets. I mean, she, I can't imagine what she must have done to keep her energy levels up through this entire movie because there's always a smile plastered on her face. Everything is like, oh, oh, oh my goodness. She's hysterical and she pulls it off so well. Yeah, she was a good sport and she was, she was the living embodiment of, of an animated character. Yes. She she totally owned it. I this was one of her first movies, I believe. If not I mean it was a, a breakout role for her, but I think she fully understood what she was being called to do. Right. I think that they said that this was the movie that kind of um set her up as a leading lady and she got nominated for a Golden Globe for this. Yeah. Best actress in a comedy or musical and I mean she earned it. If you haven't seen this movie, you have no, I mean, she makes this entire film. I mean, they're all great, but this entire movie rests on her shoulders. Oh, yeah. And it's, you don't really think of it because she is acting like a really ditzy princess, but like, it is comedy. Like, she's very, very funny. It was, it was a little bit of physical comedy. Um, you know, in her facial expressions and really just like plastering that smile on and just, you know, constantly being this like cheery, chipper princess. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And in that opening scene, um, we're introduced to Pip, her chipmunk friend. And, uh, you know, he's kind of got an accent like this. And he says, honey, do you catch the scuttle? Hit totally scuttle. Oh my gosh. No, I didn't catch that. You know what I was actually thinking of is that he kind of reminds me of Baby Herman, is that he's like this cute little chipmunk and then he talks, you know, with almost like a Brooklynite accent. But when he says honey so often, I immediately I got Buddy Hackett as Scuttle. That's really funny. No, I instantly went Baby Herman. That's really funny. Mm-hmm. Um there are just so many nice touches like when when you see granny which is the evil queen giving her the poison apple played by susan sarandon played by susan sarandon does a really nice job um it it totally pays tribute to snow white and the seven dwarfs because it's not only the poison apple well actually it's the poison apple later when she throws her down the well um she looks like the beggar woman who presents the apple to snow white a thousand percent with much worse teeth 
Yeah. Yeah, they really uh they didn't hold back on that one. Um but it's it's little things like when she when she's in Manhattan, we talked about it before and she does her little singing thing to the animals and it's flies and pigeons and cockroaches and rats and mice and she's like, "Well, it's nice to make new friends." Like she's just she's so out of touch, but she's trying so hard to like keep it in this this beautiful animated forest that she's in like she just doesn't want to let go of it no and she's doing what she knows how to do but i mean that's that's one of those things too where like new york is the only place that this the setting fits perfectly like aside from her rude awakening is that you know obviously she's not in kansas anymore and alasia as it were this is just the polar opposite. And your call to the animals is the irony here is that you're cleaning a home with disgusting New York City vermin. I mean, for those of you who are not local to Manhattan, the rumors that you hear about the rats are no joke. They are the size of small dogs. Yeah. I mean, they eat the cats. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's true. I've I've seen them. I was yeah. I was just there last week. I think that if this movie is summarized in one word, it's it's irony. There's so much irony in this film, and that's that's a great example of it right there. Is you're you're cleaning this beautiful Manhattan borderline penthouse home with the most filthy vermin possible. Right. I I think it's fair to say that it is a penthouse because um, Robert is a divorce lawyer, which is. Another ironic thing about this movie is that, you know, it's a Disney fairy tale and he's a divorce lawyer. So, you know, he's got the money to afford the penthouse. Yeah. Played by Patrick Dempsey, who really was the perfect straight man in this movie. Um, It's because he's the perfect pink dreamy. <laughs> oh, boy. He Everybody was... knows Patrick Dempsey knows him from Grey's Anatomy, which. Yeah. No, people don't obvious... know him from Scream 2. No. That ridiculous haircut he had. <laughs> But, um, you know, Disney owns ABC. So, of course, that was an easy choice in the casting pool. But, but he, he pulls great. it off well. Because he's, Another good sport. Because he's just got that, like, I'm going to be dry and roll my eyes and throw my hands up. He was really, really well. The two of them worked well together. They did. They, 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 him and Amy Adams kept themselves in check. Whereas he was too jaded and she was too over the top. Like, they did find balance there. Yeah, and the chemistry between them worked really, really well. Yeah, that was really good. And then you get Idina Menzel in her first Disney film where she couldn't be more dislikable. You really took that from me? You you didn't let me talk about Idina's first Disney film? Are you kidding? Well, I'm going to let you talk about it now. I'm not going to stop talking about it. Okay, I have mentioned this before. I am a hardcore fanzel. I know that this was her first small part in a big movie, but before that... I knew her from Wicked. I had seen it twice with her in it because I had to go back for her. And I saw her not in the original cast of Rent, I wish, but obviously in the movie Rent. But, you know, I was really excited to see her getting Disney dollars. I was like, homegirl is moving up in the world, especially because she is a Long Island native as well. As is demonstrated when she says romantic in this movie. Yeah. Like I said, she's dislikable, not because she's a poor actress, but it's it's perfectly done. Like she walks in and the first thing she says, hey, girlfriend, talking to Patrick Dempsey's daughter. And I guess I think a lot of this movie, too, is appreciated. People like us who are from here because we know people who are just like that. 
Yeah. And they walk in and I'm just like, oh, you, you know, and it, it could it could have been any actress that did it. And my my initial gut reaction would have been Ugh, you again. Right. And then she immediately switches gears to the role of pissed off girlfriend. Yeah. And rightfully so. But she does. She does it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at the time that she walks in, Patrick Dempsey is on the floor and Amy Adams is on top of him soaking wet wrapped in a towel because she has gone and taken a shower after she cleans the house. And it, it, again, just those brilliant over the top. He goes to open the door. Obviously, she's got no clothes on, but you don't see anything because she's got two birds that are yes. pulling the towel around <laughs> her as she speaks and then they fly off. And... uh she doesn't understand the concept of plumbing. She's just completely out of touch with reality. Fascinated by Where it. Where does the water come from? <laughs> Where do the pipes get it from? It's it's so good. But And I will say this, um, to touch back on Amy Adams and her performance here, um, and we're going to go back to this a lot because it does bear repeating. When she does things like that, sometimes when you see movies when you have the fish-out-of-water character... Um, they tend to come off, how do I say this? You know how Anna Faris, for the first five to ten years of her career, played the dumb character? She's got those bug eyes. And sometimes when an actress or an actor, let's just call it what it is, isn't skilled enough, they don't know how to toe the line between being confused and being dumb. Yeah. And Amy Adams does such a good job of having a very genuine, confused feel the whole time. Right. Like, she's not... She's not stupid. She's just... It's like you said, she's a complete fish out of water. And Patrick Dempsey is not only schooling her in the ways of New York, but also just in the ways of of the normal human world because she's so out of her element. Right. And that's what makes the brilliance of having her and him as a divorce attorney because he is so completely jaded by the idea of love and marriage. Obviously, he's no longer married. His first wife left him. Um, they, they straight out say it that she walked out on them. So he's jaded for so many reasons. And then you have her that's just waiting for that true love's kiss. And it's that perfect irony again. That is probably one of my favorite moments in the movie is that uh, Giselle ends up in Robert's office and when she finds out what it is that he does for a living and he's trying to explain to her why this couple is not together anymore, she almost breaks down into tears. Like she can't wrap her mind around why two people would not want to be together. Yeah. Um or two people who are in love would not want to be together. There's also these other little touches where, like, she goes to make her own clothing and she cuts up his drapes <laughs> and his curtains, <laughs> but she assembles this beautiful dress in, like, less than 10 minutes. Well, it's the help of her animal friends. That's what I'm talking about. Like, it's just, they took, they took cartoon scenarios and put them in the real world, fairy tale scenarios in the real world, and they did it so well. Right, and they do bring it full circle at the end of the movie because when she opens up Andalasia Fashions, that's why she did it is because she has these 
dressmaking skills and then she puts it to use for children but she does still have the animals working in the shop so the movie was really smart that way like it didn't really leave a lot of like loose ends it tied up everything fairly nicely right um we haven't talked about james marsden yet oh my god i'll put it i i would pay (laughs) top dollar to have a film where James Marsden, all he has to do is open a door and just start singing I've Been Dreaming of a True Love's Kiss and just see the reaction of the person on the other side. I would watch 90 minutes of that. No, we've spoken about how all of the entire cast was really good sports and they really understood the material and what they were making fun of here. But I would say James Marsden is by far the most committed to this character. He's the one that goes completely over the top and ham to the point where you should be annoyed. But because he literally does not know any better, in his case, it's absolutely perfect. Oh, yeah. As no, Prince it's like Edwards, you said. Absolutely every perfect. Every time he enters a scene, it is either this grand entrance where he like fans his arm out and he's singing or he bursts through a door with a sword. My favorite part is when he's sitting there watching the television and he's going, Mirror! <laughs> He thinks it's a magic mirror, but he's watching television, but he doesn't understand what it is. I think that if I had to compare him to any other character in cinema, um, not just in terms of being a prince in a fairy tale land, but also the way that he presented himself and presented certain situations and was just cheesy enough. I would say Carrie Yules from Princess Bride is the closest comparison. Yes, absolutely. Just that complete over the top, have to be heroic, very much channeled that Carrie Yules. It was it was brilliant. Yeah. Um Nathaniel is another great character. He is. He's played by Timothy Spall, uh, who I know from Harry Potter. That's and I, and I know him from Rockstar. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah, he was. Yeah, that's right. He was in Rockstar. But for me, it's I mean, he's still playing a villainous character, but it's kind of I'm a, such a Harry Potter fan. It's kind of hard to separate that in my head. But uh, he was great in this, even though he is playing Russian and Italian stereotypes. He was so funny. Yeah, no, he, he was really good. So let me ask you a question then being a big Harry Potter fan. Did you find it very hard to separate? Was it almost distracting? Like are other people going to feel that way watching him? That's a good question. No, I don't I don't think so. But I guess they are sort of similar. I think he plays them similar. Okay. Um and Susan Sarandon, we mentioned her before, um playing the the evil queen. Um she is another one that's like totally committed to it, especially once you get her into the human world. I think she had some fun with this one. And I, I love Susan Sarandon. I've loved everything that I've seen her in. And I really love when things are cyclical because we see Susan Sarandon's career go full circle. She was Janet in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and now she comes in looking like the sweet transvestite from Transylvania. I was going to bring that up because she's had such an interesting career. Films like this and Bull Durham and Rocky Horror, like clearly she's got not so much with Bull Durham, but with at least those two movies, she's not afraid to go whimsical. No, she's really not. Um, She added, I don't know if you caught it, but 
one choice that she made, she like flickered her tongue out a lot like a snake. Yeah. Which is interesting because she ends up turning into a dragon. She didn't turn into a snake when she takes her, you know, animal form. But I just thought that was such an interesting choice and they draw attention to it quite a bit. Um, But I feel like that that was something that she brought to the character because otherwise, um, you know, I'm saying she looks like Tim Curry in Rocky Horror Picture Show. They really did her makeup up. I mean, it, it is almost, you know, I'm wondering if they did that on purpose. We were talking about how Ursula was supposed to be modeled after a drag queen and she does look a little drag. Like her eyeshadow goes all the way from her lids up to her, her brow. It's, yeah. you know, completely, you know, it's got like this blue glittery thing going on. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe that was a nod to Ursula. Maybe. I mean, she looked good. I mean, all the characters in this look good. They looked like you had taken them out of an animated feature and put them into real life. It was very convincing. Yeah. the All of the animations looked like their real life counterparts, but yeah. everything just from the outfits to, you know, everything was just so fitting. The only thing that kind of took me out of it a little bit was um at the end when Susan Sarandon does turn into dragon form, the CGI wasn't the greatest. But what I did love about it was that her colors translated over. Like the dragon's kind of like this blue iridescent color. Um, and that it kind of took on the makeup palette of Susan Sarandon when she's in human form. Yeah, very true. It was a nice touch. Yeah, the wardrobes in this were great. The attention to detail, everything was really spot on. Yeah, they really had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, they did a nice job. Because a lot of the princess costumes are over the top. You know, like when you think like Cinderella's got the big poofy ball gown, I'm thinking of Belle's yellow ball gown. Like, you know, what would that be like in real life? And, you know, they they did like Giselle's wedding dress was completely over the top. It was so poofy. She could barely walk in the thing. But the rest of the clothes, you could still tell, like, you know, she designed them herself and they have the princess flair about them. But they do work in the real world. Yeah, they do. Um, The music works in this entire film. I mean, from start to finish. Um, The way that this movie will quickly, if you really love Disney, this movie will become one of your favorite movies. This will also become one of your favorite soundtracks. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. But there is a good reason that the music is so perfect and that's because they tapped right back into their source and Alan Menken did the music for this one. Yeah, this that it's almost forgotten about, you know, this this movie and its music, but the fact that they were able to get him back and um it does uh bear mentioning that uh Barry Sonnenfeld had um a hand in making this movie. He directed Men in Black and the Adams Family movies. Wow. So do you see where a lot of this really makes sense, especially with like those parodies? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Then like they're like these whimsical adaptations. And some of the more the more theatrical stuff. Like specifically when when Susan Sarandon transforms from the granny back to her evil queen form. It you know, it's very theatrical and even the outfit, it's got like those long billowing sleeves and everything and like that her entrance, James Marsden's entrances when he's bursting through the door singing, yeah, you can really, you can really tell. And like the little things, like Marsden is is stabbing a bus, 
it, yes. you know, because he thinks it's a big metal monster and he thinks that he's rescued the people on the bus and they're just mad that they're not going to get to work on time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Those like over the top. To- yeah, I can. Now that you say that, I can definitely see Adam's family in it yeah, so much. Exactly. So, but back to Alan Menken. Um, they definitely these again for for songs that you never heard before they had the classic disney sound and it makes so much sense as to why like he did such a nice job tapping into the feel of classic disney films and made it work so well in this movie he did and then three of those songs actually were academy award nominated for best original songs i do have to say that my favorite song in this movie is that's how you know. It's not only my favorite song, but it has become one of my favorite scenes in cinema. The whole number is amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's this number where uh, Giselle is singing in in New York City, uh, in uh, 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 Central Park, I should say, um, and... Patrick Dempsey's like, oh, she's singing again. Like, he's just like, I I can't take this anymore. And then you have street musicians that they start singing in and playing with her. And he's like, how do they know this song? He goes, (laughs) do you know this too? It was just one of the, it was almost like watching a flash mob. But he is just like so, he's so taken aback and almost exhausted by all of them. And the way that all of it comes together. And they pay homage to Little Mermaid in that in that scene because they're out on the water and he's rowing her in a rowboat. Yes. Yeah. No, that was a nice little touch. But, you know, it's an interesting number, too, because this entire time he's been trying to teach her the ways of New York City in the real world and what his perception of love is and what a committed relationship is. And now this is her turn to tell him how she knows what true love is and that sometimes it doesn't have to be practical. You don't have to overanalyze it. Is It's that you just know. Yeah. And that's where the fairy tale comes back in. One of my other favorite numbers that's really well done is the happy working song. Obviously it's the satire of whistle while you work and she's called in all of these gross New York City rats and pigeons to clean the apartment. But if you really listen to the lyrics, it's absolutely disgusting. Yeah, it's pretty nasty. And they backed it up with the visuals. I mean, they have the rats and cockroaches pulling a hairball out of the drain. It's completely disgusting. Something that I never, ever thought that I would see in a Disney movie. And I feel like that's where they've really stuck the knife in and twisted it a little bit. Yeah, and like they were scrubbing the toilet with toothbrushes. They were oh, using their toothbrushes. God, that's right. I forgot about that. I didn't. Ugh. Um, But the funniest part to me, too, about all of that is when Patrick Dempsey comes in, he sees all the vermin in his house, and he immediately tells his daughter to start picking up the rats and getting them out of the apartment. And... You know, you're horrified to find all these pigeons and vermin in your house, but you have no problem touching them and and throwing them out and chasing them out of your apartment. It's a little weird. But even weirder is that later on, Pip shows up at the restaurant when um, Pip shows up at the restaurant when Robert takes Giselle out to dinner and Pip is trying to tell Giselle that Nathaniel is trying to poison her. And Robert takes so much more issue with a chipmunk showing up in a restaurant than he does actually touching these rats to get him out of his house. I mean, granted, it's a restaurant. Nobody wants to see a rodent 
by their food, but it's a cute little chipmunk. And you have more of an issue with that than you did actually touching a rat. Right. And I think that in short, to talk about the music of this film, I think it clearly it fits this film very well. I think it fits fairy tales very well. But I think more specifically, it's Disney. It is Disney to a T. Yes. And it's absolutely perfect. And it's brilliant. Completely brilliant. Um, it it did have its sad moments, of course, in the movie where the daughter, we haven't really talked about her. I don't want to go so far as to say that she's a forgettable character, but she's let's she's orphaned kid 101. Yeah. You know, and it's a single parent kid 101. Really. Yeah. But it's like it's not it's not that she did a bad job, but she's just kind of there. I, I do like the fact that she she had the interest in the princesses before she met Giselle. So for her to meet a princess for the first time, obviously, was, you know, it was over the top for her. But it was little things like clearly she doesn't like Nancy and she doesn't want uh, her father to marry Nancy because Patrick Dempsey does mention that he's going to propose to her. And she just has that great connection with Giselle where... There was one scene where they were out getting their hair done before the ball, and she was like, "Is this what it's like going out shopping with your mother?" And it was, it was just like, it was a very sad scene. It's a really sweet moment, but it's it's bittersweet because yeah. it does tug on your heartstrings quite a bit. Um, the movie now is eleven years old. God, already. I think. The movie absolutely holds up. I don't find the humor to be outdated. I don't know that it's ever going to be. No, and I think that that's why they did something like this, because I think that they realized if they were to put out another fairy tale, it's like, what could you possibly do? So I love that they did have a sense of humor and they were willing to poke fun at themselves with this one. For as long as Disney has fanatical fans, and this community is fanatical. Yes. Like, they really are. I feel like this is the type of film that will continue to be embraced over and over and over again. And I think that it's innocent enough where kids like it, but it's it's just funny enough and so over the top that if you're an adult who grew up with Disney and loves Disney, you're going to find the comedy in this to be absolutely outstanding. Like I watch this movie. I laugh from the minute it starts to the minute it ends. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny throughout. Um, Speaking of adults who love Disney, uh, it does pay homage to a couple of things from our generation, which I really, really appreciate. Um, There are cameos by Jodie Benson, Paige O'Hara, and Judy Kuhn, who are Ariel, Belle, and Pocahontas. Yeah. I think um, Jodie Benson plays Patrick Dempsey's secretary. Yes. And Paige O'Hara is the the woman in the soap opera when James Marsden is yelling at the Magic Mirror TV. (laughs) And uh, Judy Kuhn is a pregnant woman who Giselle runs into on the street. And they had like uh, the the Bellinati... Uh, restaurant yes, yes. so paying homage to um lady and the tramp just they they were really really smart with where they placed things and um it wasn't for as over the top as the movie was where they planted those little touches i didn't feel like they were beating it over your head right like that was that was done very very um intelligently um yeah i mean just front to back i I'll just come out and say it. I love this movie. This movie doesn't get old. 
Yeah, I mean, you've you've always seemed to enjoy this movie, but watching it this week, there were points, and it, it was the same points that you had watched over and over again, but you laughed audibly during this movie. Mm. Mostly with, at James <laughs> Marsden. Mostly at James Marsden. I think somebody's got a new man crush. No, not, no, absolutely not. I have my number one. <laughs> We'll talk about him, I'm sure, eventually. We're oh, just no. leave it there. Oh, no. You just outed yourself. I was going to say, are you willing to admit it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think I think the guy is talented and funny. I'm not a... I like Zac Efron. I think he's hilarious. <laughs> Listen, for those of you who are under the age of 18, don't do what I'm about to tell you to do. For those of you who are above the age of 18 and uh, you're not sensitive to certain things, go watch Dirty Grandpa with Robert De Niro and Zac Efron and tell me you don't love the guy. Yeah, no, it's it's a pretty amazing film. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's amazing that that film exists. And it's amazing that he did High School Musical, which we will get to eventually. Yeah, but you know what, though? That's, oh, that you know what? It's perfect that you bring that up because movies like that, are so that he can completely separate himself from films like High School Musical. Right, right, right. But none of these actors or actresses need to break away from a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, that's... They're also, they were more established than he was. Well, at the time, Amy Adams really wasn't. This was like one of her breakout roles, and she's gone on to win Academy Awards. Yeah. Or at least be nominated. She's been nominated. I don't think she's won, but she's, she's definitely been nominated. I think she's been up against... Jennifer Lawrence and Jennifer Lawrence usually takes it. It I'd was have to look into that American Hustle and Silver Linings Playbook. Both Jennifer Lawrence was in both of those. Right. And she won for one of them. Right. Um but anyway, that's that's kind of neither here nor there. Um they did place um some some clips of uh classic Disney music. Like I know I definitely hear When You Wish Upon a Star at some point. Like it's it's very light in the background of one scene, but they did kind of place uh, more homages and tributes to those, those classic Disney films and songs every now and again. Yeah. I'm glad that uh, even Alan Menken was like given the opportunity to kind of poke fun. I mean, I don't know how I would really take that to poke fun at the entire, and your entire body of work. It's a little bit different than poking fun at the Disney catalog. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, in conclusion, just go watch this movie. Don't think about it. Don't put it off. Go watch it. Go watch it right now. And if you own the movie, go put it on right now. <laughs> Reintroduce yourself to it. It's been a long time since I've really walked away from a movie like taken aback. But the, the weird thing is it's a movie that I've seen. Right. And I think that that's, that's the kind of the point of this is it's not that the movie's forgettable so much as it is that you you sort of gravitate towards the more classic films but i think this one within itself kind of is a classic disney film well if you take the satire out of it it is a good fairy tale yeah it you know it's a good love story yeah it's every disney princess that you've seen and every fairy tale that you've seen and a lot of the same music that you've heard, but just done so well. Um, news for this week, we had three huge trailer drops this week. Yes. We'll start with Captain Marvel first because we're going to spend the least amount of time talking about <laughs> it um, because we have to go back and rewatch. Um, but I know uh, upon first viewing, 
I only speak for myself, really did not like Infinity War. So admittedly, when I saw the trailer for Captain Marvel, I was kind of like, okay, the Captain Marvel trailer. Um, I think Brie Larson looks good. I think she looks good in the outfit. I think she makes for a convincing superhero. I really like the 90s touches. Clearly, it takes place in the 1990s, and she falls into that blockbuster video. Yeah. Um, It's good to see Samuel L. Jackson back. That's about the most I can tell you about the movie. Yeah, I mean, really, Blockbuster is what grabbed my attention more than anything else. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm going to go see it, but it, it, it didn't hook me. I, I can I'm kind of take it or leave it with this one. Um, Wreck-It Ralph dropped <sighs> another absolutely brilliant trailer this week. They keep getting better and better with every single one that they do. I will admit that when I saw the first Wreck-It Ralph trailer, I loved it. Um when they had um they had Vanellope with the other Disney princesses and yes. they had the little lines like, "Oh, she's from the other she's from the other studio." Like again, poking them fu- poking fun at themselves. We know Disney's not afraid to do it. Clearly, we just talked about it for 45 minutes. Um but I I did have um a hesitation that perhaps this was a movie cuz I loved Wreck-It Ralph. I know we both did, but I kind of wondered like have they given away all the good stuff in the first trailer? I think sometimes when you make a sequel to a movie that was so well done the first time, there's there's so I, I'm cautiously optimistic about the sequels. But every single trailer they put out, it's new content. It's nothing we've seen in any of the other trailers, and it just gets better and better every time. Like I am so excited for this movie. I mean, Disney rickrolled us for crying out loud. Yes, they did. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited for this one. They did a nice job like the Rick Rolling for example, like those viral videos, like they're making this movie so internet centric. Yeah. It fits. They didn't Rick Roll for the sake of doing it. I mean, they could have and it would still be funny, but it actually does work. Yeah. Um tastefully done, really smart. The one trailer that I think we're going to spend the most time talking about, which is why we saved it for last, is Mary Poppins Returns. We finally got a full-length trailer for Mary Poppins Returns. Yes. I'm going to let you start. Um, well, I will... Because this, mi- this, this was met with mixed reviews. Yes. Um, I will say this. When I heard that they were doing Mary Poppins, I thought it was going to be a remake, not a sequel. So I was totally not on board with them remaking it. And after seeing this, that Mary, I mean, obviously I know it's Mary Poppins Returns, um, but I love that it's not just she's back and she's dropping in on a random family. I love that she is revisiting the Banks children. So I'm definitely on board with that. I think Emily Blunt looks and sounds fantastic. I think that she totally embodies Mary Poppins and that she is doing a good job of like towing the line between making it her own and still being what Julie Andrews established as the character. Um, as far as the rest of it, um, the, the, what I took away most is that I feel like a lot of these live action Disney remakes. And I mean, this isn't a live action. It was always live action. Um, I feel like, 
a lot of these trailers stylistically are starting to look the same. I feel like it looked a lot like Christopher Robin. I feel like it looks a lot like Dumbo. You've get, got a lot of those like washed out grays kind of. Um, Which maybe has to do with the London thing. Maybe, but yeah, I'll give you that because Beauty and the Beast doesn't look like that. But with I, Dumbo, I think that's just Burton. Maybe, but I feel like now that you're releasing these so close together, like they really should be careful of things like that because now it's starting to feel like they're all set in the same world. But you're right, Christopher Robin is also set in London. Right. Um, I was, I'll, I was blown away by this trailer. Um, I didn't think I was gonna like it because I like Emily Blunt. I don't think movies like this if it took you 54 or 55 years to make a sequel you probably didn't need a sequel um that's sort of always my mentality when it comes to these movies that get sequels so far from when the original ones were released it does seem a little cash grabby 100 percent. and admittedly i am not a fan of lin-manuel miranda i don't get it i'm now i'm not a big theater person i haven't seen hamilton Personally, I have no interest in seeing Hamilton. I didn't like, and it'll be a movie we talk about down the line, I didn't like most of the music in Moana. No, agreed. Um, I just, I don't really get the hype around him. Like, I'll, like, I know that he's got talent, but I feel like so much of his talent is because of his hype. You know what I'm saying? Like, does that make sense? Like, maybe, like, he's meant to be, like, he's drawn up to be more talented than he is. I mean, that's literally the definition of hype. Like, he's almost brought up to be more talented than he is because he's hyped up so much. I think you need to listen to the Hamilton soundtrack. And he also wrote in the Heights. No, the guy's a no, the guy's a musical genius. I didn't love Moana, but I respect him as a musician and I respect what he's done. I he knows music. Um. Yeah, no, I, I I recognize how talented he is, though I agree with you. I didn't love Moana. You know, Into the Heights, Into the Woods, coming out of their shells, it's all the same thing. Like, you know, I, but uh, I will say, uh, he impressed me in this trailer. Like, yeah. This, th- that's, that's what I'm getting to, is I never really understood his hype until I saw this trailer. That's kind of where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. This trailer was the first time I really saw him as a true performer that I can get on board with. At least in this case. And who does not like to see Dick Van Dyke on screen? Yeah, I'm glad that he came back. I'm glad we get that cameo. Um, I'm kind of bummed that we're not getting a Julie Andrews cameo in this. But um, if you've heard the reason why, I really do respect it is that uh, she declined the cameo because she said this is Emily's and she didn't want to take away from Emily Blunt. Yeah, I think that's a really classy thing to do. So instead they put Meryl Streep in. Yeah. Which, well, by the way, I'm over it. Yeah, I, I'm totally over Meryl Streep. And, well, that's that's another conversation for off air. <laughs> we're, not, we're not even going to have that conversation on air. Yeah, um, but uh, I'm definitely excited for Mary Poppins. I'm excited to see what they do with it. And, you know... If they draw from the book, uh, which is what they did with the Broadway play, um, there, there's going to be a couple of elements that I think are really cool and that are going to be, uh, you know, it's even going to work better than being on stage to see how they bring it to the movie. So we had a big Blu-ray release today, uh, today being September 25th of 2018. Uh, Solo 
came out on Blu-ray today. And we talked before about Marvel, and I mentioned that um, with Captain Marvel, I was kind of like, eh, I'm over it, because I was not a big fan of Infinity War, and I seem to be in the minority, so I do have to watch it again. Um, but I, the way that I felt about the Captain Marvel trailer was sort of the way that everybody felt about Solo um, when this movie came out, because mm. there was a lot of backlash after The Last Jedi, and people were not happy with it. And of course, this film had bad press all around it. They went through two or three different directors, and Alden Ehrenreich had to have um, a coach with him on set because he just wasn't getting the character down. I'll save my review for Solo um, for when we eventually do the review of Solo. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. I think that this movie is going to find a second life in home video release. I don't think it's going to make back the 40 to $50 million that the studio lost. Um, but I do think it's going to find uh, renewed interest and a fresh audience because the critics actually liked this movie. And if you read any of the Google reviews or the IMDb or even the Rotten Tomatoes reviews, Audiences in general liked this movie, so I think it's going to see a second life. And I can say that because when I went to Target today to get it, we have a big Target around us. Um, it's one of those really busy, huge stores that gets a ton of stock. By 10 o'clock in the morning, and the store had only opened at 8, I got the last copy. Wow. So uh, clearly people are buying it. I mean, I haven't seen it yet, but I think that people's gripe with this movie is that, you know, it's interesting that you asked me before with um, Timothy Spall is, uh, you know, can I separate the characters? I feel like Han Solo, Harrison Ford is so ingrained as Solo. I think that's the biggest beef is that the actor could not play him in the same way just based on what I've heard from this movie. But I feel like that's the big issue with it. Right. And a little bit of Parks news from this week, because you know, we don't cover the Parks a lot, but I think certain times it's like it does bear mentioning. Um, Illuminations is closing, or has closed, I believe, at Epcot. That had been there forever, making room for another fireworks spectacular. Mm -hmm. But the big surprise was at Animal Kingdom, they're closing uh, Rafiki's Planet Watch, which I'm surprised at because you have the new Lion King movie coming out in the next couple of years. Right. And like, why would they close something when you're going to give it a revival? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're going to replace it with something else. Well, we own, we know they always do. Uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining. Um, make sure that you follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We post throughout the week. Um, like and, and subscribe to the podcast and, and give us some ratings. We'd really love to hear from you guys and know how we're doing. Um, and share the show with your friends. If you have anybody that you know loves Disney or loves films and you think this is in their wheelhouse, of course, we, we'd love to hear from from new audiences and from from some new people. So for Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs>